0: This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org.
1: Okay, uh, a couple of words about funerals, and then we're going to move into the hospital room. First of all, about funerals. Um, obviously, I didn't do what I was supposed to do when I talked. So, um, in the funeral home, Typically what happens is you'll get a call, somebody's died, okay? What you do then is you make a decision whether you're going to go over to the house and see them or you're going to meet them at the funeral home. Typically there's going to be a meeting at the funeral home where they have to go through all the decisions about what they're going to do. I've found it easiest to meet them at the funeral home because typically I've been in the house on and off as death approaches. It's much better to have death at home. If you can get your people to die at home, that's where you want them to die. okay? At the funeral home I take charge and then give up my authority to the funeral director. Funeral directors will be sensitive to the degree to which you are leading or following. All right? They're very good at seeing the reality of what's going on and then stepping in or not depending on what the need is. So what I say to them is, I would like to have some time with the family before you get down to the decisions. Oh, yes, yes, Pastor, yes. That's what they'll do. And then you pray with them, you read Scripture, and you say, okay, let's go into them. I usually will sit with the family in that office as they go through the decisions, because sometimes they'll look at me and say, "Uh, what's the schedule that works best? And I like to be there for the schedule. Sometimes they'll say, well, what do you think, Tim? Tim? And you can step in and encourage them not to spend more money on this or that or the other thing. I like to have funerals for people in the church in the church, not at the funeral home. Bury your people out of the church. The funeral director will always prefer to have it at the funeral home, always. And it's not just because of money. It's because it's much more convenient and they're, co- they're in control. So try to have the funeral at the church. We try to have a very simple sandwich luncheon after it. Why? Because when you go out to the grave and you come back to the church, you want people of the family to just be able to sit and talk without having to think about their home, without having to think about uh, food. And so the women of the church, and you'll get pushback from the women of your church. It's like, you know, they may not want to do it. And that's a place for you as pastor just to say to them, look, this is the way we serve people that are grieving. Uh, don't you think this would be helpful? And, th- and that's, that's all you'll need to say. Then, when you, when you go to the funeral, meet with them 15 minutes before the funeral and pray with the family members in a separate room. Just tell the funeral director, I want to meet with the family before the service. Why? Because you need to establish what's gonna, what, what the climate for that family is. You need to give them your strength you need to pray for them, touch them, walk around. I'm sorry, you know. Then the funeral. If it's here, if it's regardless of where it is, you are in control of the funeral. And if you if you don't get ahead of the eight ball on that, you're you're dead in the water today. Funerals are getting awful. Now, the way that we handle that is. We make it clear that the order of worship and everything about it, we do. So, for instance, our office produces the little half-page front and back thing, okay? And that gives you the ability of structuring it the way you want. We do not allow eulogies in the service. If there's one thing that I want to tell you today, it is do not allow eulogies in a service. Don't allow it. Don't allow people to stand up and sit down in a service. I know everybody does it but the abuse of that is horrible and that's something that needs to be reformed the service is a service of worship testifying to the resurrection of jesus christ and the dead in christ it is a worship service you don't give worship services over to family members you don't do it and so what you want to do is say look i'm happy to have a eulogy you can give it to me you can have a family member do it and it'll be before the service. Make a clear line of demarcation when that eulogy is, then you stand up and I just use the 1948 Presbyterian Book of Common Worship. You can get them on used. uh, If you want to write one of us here and we'll send you links to them and I just go through it. You pick and choose prayers and scriptures, little book, it's real helpful. Then I use the Episcopal Prayer Book Committal Service. One service for the funeral, another service for the committal. And when they get done giving the eulogy, and if they want to have people stand up, fine, have them stand up. But make it clear, this is not my turf. This is what you guys are doing. And then I will start. And then you stand up and what do you say? What are your first words? What are your first words? Come on, quick. No. Our help, our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Okay? A few other sentences Then a very simple funeral service where you preach. No eulogy, no people standing up and gushing, nobody. A service of worship testifying to the resurrection. You get done your service and then you look at the funeral director and you say, I'm done. He will then walk up and typically he'll do one of two things. He'll either take the family out or more likely he'll take the casket. You ask him which is the head. You have a relationship with the head of the casket as a pastor has to the bride at a wedding. Your face is always facing the bride, always facing the bride. You turn, you face, that's what you do with the head of a casket. When it gets out of the hearse and goes to the grave, you say to the funeral director, which is the head? And then you're solicitous to the head of that casket. That's the way you honor the person. You walk over to the grave and you stand at the head. Are you with me? Okay. Be sensitive funeral directors. They want things to move on. Don't, don't, be, don't be stupid. Help the funeral director. They're the wonderful people, is the funeral directors and the gravediggers. Always thank the funeral director. Always go over and greet the gravediggers that are skulking behind gravestones in some other part. Thank them. These are your servants. Okay. Always thank them. Okay. And you won't believe how they'll love being thanked. It comes out of the hearse, it goes over to the grave. You stand there, you don't talk at this point, you have dignity. And then there's a service, it's what, about three minutes long. And you just go through that service, and I read it, that's it, that's it. Typically we will sing Amazing Grace at the grave because everybody knows all the words to Amazing Grace. And when you get done, you'll think, well that can't be all I'm supposed to do here, we at got all these people. that's all you do that's all you do you go through the service and then you're the first person you go over to the widow or whoever it is seated at the front and you say i'm sorry and then you go through the family and then other people begin to do this okay and then you stand outside of the tent you don't make a bunch of jokes you don't you know it's not about you and you don't need to do any more your presence is what's needed You don't have to say a bunch of stupid stuff. You have dignity, so just be quiet and have dignity. Okay? Then you come back to the meal and you go through the family seeing if there are problems. Typically families will fight at deaths. And so you want to be very sensitive to the fighting. Okay? Now, how do you feel about handling fighting? You don't want to be insecure about handling fighting. You want to assume that God made you an elder, a pastor, a deacon because the people were coming to Moses all day, every day with their conflicts. And so the norm in the church, in families, is they will fight. There will be arguments, there will be tensions. You're there to handle it. Now, when Mr. Taylor was dying, um, he was at home. And listen, let me tell you something. I had to get involved in the issue of whether or not he would would die natural death or whether he would be murdered. And you say, murder? Nobody said that. Well, you know that's the subtext for everything. When he talks about the issue of morphine, he's saying murder. When he talks about feeding tubes, he's saying murder. When he talks about Terry Schiavo, it's murder. This is what is at stake. And it, it, it will be an abnormal uh, death of people in your church where you don't have to be on guard to protect your people from murder. We had... We had... I was in Toledo and David and I went to my presbytery meeting. I'd missed the previous one and there's a man that came out of covenant who said he took exception to the Westminster Larger Catechism where it said that it is a sin against the Sixth Commandment to not give to withhold the necessary means for the sustaining of life. And he he said, in a persistent vegetative state, somebody who is just a vegetable, after an accident, you should not have to maintain their life. And the presbytery voted to approve his ordination. And then this godly church over in Cincinnati that was always being nasty, because they were principled, they came to the next presbytery meeting and they said, no, this is wrong. Uh, you were there. And they said, this is murder. That's what they actually said when they appealed the decision to the presbytery. And I mean, everybody in that presbytery was like, are you accusing me of murder? You remember that? It was like they were in high dudgeon. Somebody had actually accused this august group of presbyters, (laughs) you know, of approving murder it was it was unbelievable and this guy go ahead you, yeah you were there yeah give him the mic no i don't want yeah but but hold on i'll i'll let you do that in a second no and so we go through this meeting and people are standing up and i mean this poor insurance agent who was the elder bringing the complaint The poor guy, I mean, he was like, whoa, you know, the assistant stated clerk, everybody's just in his face. Well the man that was most intensely incensed over this whole thing, all right, was sort of the, well, well, okay. So you go through the whole thing and the presbytery sees the writing on the wall. They know that church is going to appeal at the General Assembly unless they go back and do it right. And there's just a lot of back and forth. And finally, I'm put on a committee that's going to meet with the guy. I kept telling him, if you say death is in and inevitable instead of just saying PVS, uh, then you're okay. But if you just say, if somebody's in a persistent vegetative state, we shouldn't feed them or give them water, that's murder. You can't say that. And, and he just kept not being willing to say it finally the presbytery says all right we're going to reverse our decision and we're going to put this in committee and we're going to ask you to work with him right and of course the minute you get in committee what does the guy do I mean this is what's supposed to happen in presbytery meetings the guy backs down that's what's supposed to happen in presbytery meetings men that would have endorsed murder are rebuked and then they change their position that's the purpose of a presbytery it doesn't get any better than that okay that's what's supposed to happen now, here's the interesting thing. In that meeting, there's one guy who he is just in high dudgeon. I mean, the guy's just like, badit, 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 badit. you know, how could you? And this man is an upstanding and, badit, 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 badit. yeah, he's not opposed to murder. Do you understand this? He's opposed to anybody saying that's murder. Okay. And a couple months later, that guy goes out in the wilderness. And he kills himself. Okay? It hit the PCA like a sledgehammer. He was known all across the PCA. And nobody made the point. And all I could think of was, huh? Truth is an order to goodness. There's no more doctrine more pernicious than that which holds that it's of no consequence what a man believes. Our Savior's rule is by their fruit you shall know them. Shouldn't we as pastors at that point see there may be a connection between a man arguing in favor of the the murder of Terry Schiavo and a man that kills himself? But nobody could bear to say it. So you're going to be at the funerals. You're going to see messes. You're going to know that they're withholding penicillin for pneumonia in the nursing home, for heaven's sakes. (laughs) You're going to know it right? And you have to speak up with authority. We will not have murder on my watch and then you watch the feathers fly. But you will be the protector of the entire Western Christendom tradition that has repented of killing the feeble and the newborn and the elderly, okay? That's your job. Now, one little thing, and then we'll go to the hospital room. So you think, oh, well, I can't do this stuff. Well, I couldn't do it. You just do it, okay? You are the leader. You are the man. All right? That's what a minister is. Okay? When David was getting married, there was a man who was involved with... uh, being the pastor of David's wife Cheryl, and he for some reason was at the, did he do your wedding? Okay, he took part in the wedding, and he was an older pastor, and he'd spent his life planning churches, and we sat at the uh, um, shelter, it was like at a park, and so I started picking his brain, it's one of the privileges of being a minister. It's just fascinating, all the people you get to pick their brain. So I'm asking him questions, and, and he's just gone to a new church, and he said that as a part of going to this new church, what he did was he sent out a card, a postcard, to all the, church, or to all the people in the church, and the postcard said, um, I want to set up a time to come over to your house. I'm going to be there for 45 minutes. When I'm there, I want you to answer these questions. How many times? A week, do you read your Bible personally? How many times do you have family devotions? How often do you pray? Da, 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 da. Well, I'm at a PCUSA church, which means pagan, all right? And I'm trying to imagine this guy coming to the churches I've just come to and sending out a postcard like that. And I look at him, I say, uh, What was his name? Mr. Goldsmith. I said, Pastor Goldsmith, if I did that at my church, I'd get fired. Which. I sort of like the fact that I said that, you know, it was so nakedly disgusting. <laughs> and he looks at me and he says this and I've never forgotten it. He said, Tim, if there's one thing I've learned in the ministry, it is that people do what you expect them to do. Now listen, men. What that means is if you're apologetic when you're asking about the tubes and the feeding, dehydration, penicillin, if you're apologetic when you say the eulogy will not be a part of your worship service, you're going to lose because you're telling people that you're fearful. And boy, people love it when you're fearful. They will just take you to the cleanup. <laughs> but you just look at them and you say, there won't be any. Or I, how often do you have sex, you know? One of the most important diagnostic questions in a counseling session of a couple. Uh, how often do you have sex? Who initiates it? <laughs> you know? And guess what? I don't care what couple it is. If their pastor looks him in the eye and, and asks that question, they'll just answer. <laughs> but you flinch, your goose is cooked. They'll go out to everybody in the church and, you know what our pastor wanted to know about us? You know? So, listen, when it comes to funerals, you are in charge. It is a worship service. You are the minister of the word. All right? Now, the hospital room. In the hospital room, you have two bosses you have the pastor, you have the doctor. And the doctor's representatives are the nurse. Um, What are they? Huh?
2: Mainly the nurse.
1: Yeah, mainly the nurse, but also you can have blood pressure takers and ancillary, the food people. The food people are often problematic.
2: Uh, Often the first problem you'll run into is the person at the information desk or at the nurse's station. Because you have to ask where the room is or you have to get past them to get to the room. And that's another place you need to be unflinching. You know, you have every much right to be there as anyone else does. Um, <clears throat> my experience, the doctors really aren't the problem. Most doctors I know are absolutely fine with pastors coming in and providing pastoral care, um, largely because I think they know it's needed and they don't want to do it. So they're happy for you to do it. The people that get real territorial and self-important are the nurses. And you know, I love nurses and so I can be sympathetic with it and and patient with it and I would encourage you to try to as well because they really are, especially in the ICU, they're there for 12 hours with these people bearing their pain, dealing with their difficult family members, and they see, they're their mothers, okay? Have you guys ever read what G.K. Chesterton says about why you don't let women in the workplace? It's not because they don't do a good job of it, it's because they do too good a job of it. They can't let it go. They're wolves. They're like mother wolves. Okay, and that's what nurses are. That's their patient. That's their cub. And they look at suspicion with anybody, including me, including who comes the in
1: there. the mother of the baby. Yeah. With, with Hannah.
2: Yep they are the she-wolf mother of that patient. And you just have to realize that's what you're dealing with. And that's what you're paying for. You want that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you have to be pushy sometimes to get access to the patient. I don't know what else to say about it, but you just have to. And you have to be unflinching. You can't be apologetic.
1: But in order to be pushy, you have to know what the vibes for a hospital room are. So you have to know when it's going to be meal time, because you saw the trays coming down the hallway. You saw the cart. You know that you have a limited amount of time. You also have to know that the best pastoral visit is usually somewhere between five and fifteen minutes. Don't overstay your welcome. Yeah. You, you know, David, you should just be up here. Can I say one thing? Get him a mic and. David, come come up here. I don't.
3: I've never had problems with. Where nurses. Are
1: the, I, where are I the, said where I've are the, never
3: had problems with nurses. No, on. I'm not going to come up, but um. Uh, but fight. I Wait have on. had push, push. major battles come on, with doctors. Really? Yes. Come on, come on. And I I think.
1: Well, one place I, I, it's always tense is surge surgery prep.
3: Okay. Surgery, but let, let me also say. Sit down. The, the first thing I made Andrew do when he came to be a pastor out there is to go up, because I had to be out of town and deal with a family where the mother wanted their, her son to die, and the doctors were trying to talk everyone into it, and there were some opponents, and I made mm-hmm. him go up and say, "You're killing your son." Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it was the hardest thing he's probably ever done in his life, but it was the doctors who were pushing the death. The nurses well, are never pushing. And the I
2: death. Do, and I don't mean to suggest that. Yeah you'll never have a problem with a doctor. I'm just talking about in terms of being able to spend time with the patient. Now surgeons are a different breed and I don't
1: yeah that's one thing. Surgeons are a very different breed and you have to realize that okay surgeons are the nastiest physicians there are but that's partly because they're cutting people and people are dying or living all the time. You have to have a massive ego to take a knife to a human body
2: I sent Jody to a surgeon recently, who's a Christian, and I like him, but what did you say, Jody? You said, uh, well, he's confident. (laughs) Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's as tame as it gets, even with a Christian surgeon.
1: Yeah, so now you go in the hospital room, right, and you scope it out. Usually you have family members, but the minute the pastor comes in, typically the family members are going to be relieved that you're there, because you bring you bring God into mm-hmm. the room, you bring scripture, you bring faith, mm-hmm. okay, so you go in the room, first of all, you go over to the bed, where do you stand i don 't know Well, you stand in such a way that the person doesn 't have to turn their bed or, or to, to watch you, so you stand you don 't sit down because then they have to lift up their bed or turn over. And so you watch a doctor, a doctor comes in the room and a doctor stands directly in the vision of his patient. That's what you do. So that there's no inconvenience to the patient. And your orientation is to the patient, it's not to the family members. You're not there by their permission, okay? And then, you know, how are you, you know, and and for myself I always touch them, always put your hand on their head, on their cheek, on their shoulder, grab their hand, rub their hand. Why? Why? Because oftentimes we're we're squeamish and we don't want to be around death, sickness, anything. And so you wipe the butt. Do you understand? I remember when a guy was up at St. Vincent's dying of AIDS and this was back in about 92. And it was a big secret, you know, went up to this hospice St. Vincent's AIDS Center. What do you do with an AIDS patient? We didn't really know at that time. And I knew my life was in jeopardy by going to visit this guy. And so what do you do in a situation like that? I felt it was absolutely mandatory that this homosexual dying had a heterosexual Christian man touching him constantly when he was in that room. Do you understand this? And so again, you are the man. You love them, you touch them, you stand, you talk to them. And there are only two important things when you visit patients in hospital rooms. What are they? One is you read scripture to them, and the second is what? And that you pray for them. Dad said to me when I went in the ministry that he said, every time you go into a home, pray God's blessing on the home. He said, for many of the people in that home, it will be the only time in their lives anybody will pray in their home for them and for their household.
2: I have medical students all the time say to me, you know, I notice that you talk to people about spiritual things. you ever get in trouble for that? And my answer is, yeah, once I had, once I did.
1: Religious studies professor.
2: Yeah. But by and large, the vast majority of times, patients love it. Even if they're bold, in-your-face unbelievers, they're grateful for it. And they, I've never had anybody say they didn't want me to pray for them, I ask. Um, and so if they're, if they're thankful for it from a doctor, how much more from a pastor? I'm going to... Uh, Interject a funny story about touching people here. A dear friend of mine's wife had a miscarriage and had to go to the hospital as a result, and she's getting ready to be taken back to the um, operating room uh, because she was having some problems. And I thought, well, I tend to be kind of cold and clinical, so I should touch her. And like, 20 seconds later, I realize I'm rubbing her leg. <laughs> and, and I pray, and she goes, and <laughs> when I'm left with her husband, I said, I'm so sorry, I was just rubbing your wife's leg. <laughs> and he, you know, he didn't mind, she didn't mind. They were very gracious and understanding, but these are the kinds of yeah, yeah. things that will happen. And again, you just, it's not about you it's just not about you and, and that's if there's actually you know I don't really believe in mantras but if there's anything that has helped me more than anything as I'm making rounds at the hospital and, and face difficult situations or I hear godless talk among the nurses and I'm deciding whether or not to say something as I just say to myself Adam it's about Jesus it's not about you
0: mm-hmm.
1: now The institution of the hospital is different from the doctor and it's different from the nurse. And I would encourage you to be aggressive with the institution of the hospital because hospitals will view you as there by their permission. You're not there by the hospital's permission, are you? You are there because of the patient. And so there are times where you'll have to remind the chaplains, the administration, their demands. I got a letter from them saying here saying that I had to sign a document promising I would not share any of the the, the information I got in the hospital because of HEPA laws, right? And so what do you do? You tell them, hey, listen, I'm not bound by your HEPA laws. Um, I'm there because of the patient. If the patient tells me something, I will tell that information to whomever needs to know it based upon my judgment as a minister of the gospel. And boy, they were just freaked out that I would have any, how could any Christian, that's what they said, have any objection to this? And it's, it's, it's a question of authority. You're there to defend the authority of the gospel and its ministers.
3: Yeah, you can't give up the authority that, you, you have to be like Paul with the Philippian jailer at times in a hospital. You know, at the end of which he says, oh, you're gonna let me go? Don't you know I'm a Roman citizen, you know? And, and use the authority you have in the hospital, be, or they will trample on you. And, and so there's a time to really insist on your authority. And it's nice at those times to be in there with a sport coat on. You
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, one thing, when you're visiting, always, somebody will come in with food, a nurse will come in to take blood pressure, a doctor will come in for a cons- consultation or something. It always happens when you're reading the Bible and praying that that will happen, Right. You've all had it happen. How do you handle it? The way I handle it is I look at the doctor, I look at the nurse, I look, I'm not with the food. I always let the food just come because they're out of there in a second. It's fine. But the others, I say, I'm almost done. Could you just give me a couple? And the minute you say that, oh yes, you're asking. You're putting yourself in the supplicant mode and their their inclination is to grant you whatever you want. Now, if you have a self-important officious nurse coming in, And you know how waiters will just interrupt any conversation when they come to take your order? Nurses will be like that. What you do is you look at them and you say, I'm sorry, would you please come back in a couple minutes? Do not let them just come in and start talking to you, okay? You are reading scripture and praying. This is your turf. You're there at the wish of the patient. They have spiritual needs that are infinitely more important than their, than their physical needs. That doesn't make you important, right? You're a schmuck. But it makes what you're doing important. Okay, now, Dave, I'm sorry. I mean, look at David and me. Without even knowing each other, we're just going... We're, If I could, yeah, he's asking about how to handle chaplains in a hospital room. And honestly, well, never mind. Listen, I think of chaplains as ghouls. You know, they're vultures that circle over death. And they have a certain place, I suppose, to pick over the carrion. But I have never been helped by a chaplain?
2: I get all these um, hospice and home health orders that I have to sign and they come and they're like four pages long and there's no way you can ever read every word of it, but yeah. one thing that always yeah. stands out to me is the yeah. the uh, update from the chaplain and they'll say, uh, came to the patient's bedside, sat next to them and uh, offered comfort. Um, and that's their documentation of their work, and I always think, are you kidding me? Like, somebody just gets paid to go around and just... And it's not that sitting next to someone and offering them comfort is wrong. You know, you heard Tim talking about how his dad appreciated that after the death of a child. But don't have any misconception about whether or not these people are ministers of the gospel and whether or not they're really addressing people's spiritual needs at the time of
1: death. We thought about getting involved with hospice care in in Bloomington and then we were told point blank that there could not be spiritual work done by anybody that volunteered with hospice. What is a chaplain? A chaplain is somebody that subordinates their faith in God to the needs of any particular patient as that person understands their needs. And so by definition, chaplains can't be good unless you, maybe if you're in a Roman Catholic hospital, it might be different. But Divine Savior and Portage was not different. And so you have to be very careful about chaplains. I just try to act like they're not there. Um, I don't have anything good to say about how you deal with chaplains. Uh, it's just awful. You know, the guy that was a chaplain here for years and the guy that's a chaplain now, it's like, oh, I just can't
2: even go into it. I wanted to say something about, you know, interruptions. Um, they interrupt me. You have a, a zealous, well-meaning nurse who will interrupt me when I'm trying to talk to somebody about their code status. If you stop breathing, do you want us to do such and such? And they'll interrupt with taking blood pressure, starting IVs, and you just have to be, you know, there's there's ways of doing it that are where you're being a jerk and there are ways of doing it that are just gracious but firm and unapologetic and you just have to say I need you to let me have time with this patient you can take the blood pressure later you can start the IV in two minutes I have to finish this, this is more important
1: Now, about children, we just got a note David, would you address that please?
3: Well, I I think it might be good to have Um, have Doug address it. You know, um, Doug, would you speak about it? Because I I think it would be helpful.
0: (laughs) Our son was very sick this summer. um, And one of the things that that he really appreciated uh, was when pastors came and where people came to visit, that they actually talked to him. Um, the thing we have to remember, children, the children in your congregations have an eternal soul. And it's not the parents that you need to be primarily oriented to at that point. It's the child. Um, so forgive me. Um, but encouraging the child in faith. And the parents draw strength from that. And that was very much appreciated, not just by us, but by our son this summer. Uh, the, the people that took time to actually talk to him to see how he was doing and not ask us how he was doing. Um, it, it was very, um, very awkward at times when people would come and visit and they talk to us as if Jonathan wasn't there. And, you know, he's laying there going, you know, do I say anything? Do I not say anything? This is weird. Let me just lay here. Okay. And when are they going to leave? Um, so engage with the child, love the child, not just the parents.
1: One thing to say about children is... Um, if a child's in the hospital everybody wants that child to live if an adult is in the hospital sometimes everybody wants the adult to die right? If the child is in serious condition man it is your responsibility to make sure that that child knows that he might die and everything about that parent is probably going to oppose you you scaring them because they're claiming it by faith and so listen as a minister of the gospel You're not afraid of death. It's a horrible enemy. But you're the one that makes the mother and the dad and the child realize that God has not promised that children won't die. Do you understand me? And unless you have faith for that, you're just going to be completely unhelpful. But if you say, you know son, if you go and meet God, it'll be terrible for us but it'll be wonderful for you if you have faith that the child is a christian go ahead
3: i don't think that there's any place where i more often find myself in conflict than in hospitals (laughs) you know it's 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 so frequent to leave the hospital feeling sick
1: you
3: know because you're dealing with families that are at odds that you're dealing with families that want their loved one to die you're you're having to say things I think my, one of my first big fights as a pastor was going to a hospital where a teenager in the church, marginally in the church, had attempted suicide. And I, I thought, well, I'm, I've been told she attempted suicide, and that's why she's in here. I didn't know her really well. But I said, I talked to her about what she'd just done. I asked her if she knew where she was going to go. And she said, no. And I said, I talked to her about if you jumped out this window, because there was a fire in the room. Would it be wise just to jump at night when you don't know what's, you know? I said, do you know what room you're on she didn't, uh, what floor you're on she didn't know? And I said, you know, you're jumping into something and it could be worse than what you're facing. The hell is real. And her parents wanted to kill me. They wanted to kill me for having brought that up. So don't think of hospital visits as being, it's a battleground when you go to the hospital, I think.
2: Yeah, and... As I hear these experiences and think about ones that I've had, it underscores for me the importance for you guys to just be listening and watching like hawks when you go in to understand the vibes and understand what's going on. Because David open says that nurses up? Open that
1: up specifically. Yeah,
2: David says nurses don't want patients to die. In my experience, nurses do want patients to die. Some of you read a blog post that I wrote a year or so ago, about this and there was, a, there was a head nurse at the hospital that I had worked with for years and had great relationship with but there was a guy who was dying and he was taken way longer to die than anybody expected. And She said to me, um, can't we get a little Ativan and speed this up? She just said it as though she was saying, you know, I think I'm going to stop and get some milk on the way home. It didn't, there was no compunction of conscience whatsoever. And if I had given her the order, she would have gone in and given him a lethal dose dose of Ativan right then. And so it just depends what nurse you're dealing with, what doctor you're dealing with, what family member you're dealing with. And you have to, you have to be, you have to lead in the situation. You can't react. You have to, you know, um, one of the, the, the men in our church is great at negotiating construction deals. And the reason he is is because he knows the trade of the subcontractors better than they know it. You have to know what's going on with the, with the people you're caring for better than they know what's going on, better than their families know. Okay. And the only way you can do that. Okay,
1: now, how do these men cultivate sensitivity to know where they're needed in a hospital room, particularly about medications, feeding, stuff like that. What are the indicators? What should they listen for? Because they're not doctors. We're not doctors, right? We all know that.
2: Well, some of the things were the statements I gave you up on the board yesterday um, when people start saying things like, you know, this just isn't the man I married. You know, let's ask any one of your wives if they (laughs) are, if if you're the man they married and if not, if they're happy about that. (laughs) Let's hope to God that 40 years into marriage, we're not the men that our wives married. Okay. It, it, it's, a, it's a useless statement, but it shows where their mind is going. It shows that they're tired. It shows that they don't have faith to watch their loved ones suffer anymore. And
1: so how would you respond to that? What would you say to them?
2: I would say to them, well, I've said things similar to what I just said before. I said, well, you know, it's not the man you married, but it's the man that you, you promised to be with through sickness and in health. Um, it's the man you promise to be with till death do you part. And uh, it's not up to me to decide when he dies. That's God's decision. And I will do my best to alleviate his suffering. And that's one thing that we have to, I think, say explicitly, is that treating pain and alleviating suffering is not unchristian, okay? Jesus had compassion for people that were suffering around them, and often he healed them. Saying that you're pro-life, saying that you're anti-euthanasia doesn't mean you think we should just rejoice in um, that we should delight in suffering. We accept suffering by faith knowing that God has good purposes for it, but it's not wrong to try to help people not be in pain. What's wrong is when you are overly aggressive in treating the pain knowing that you may cause harm, that you may murder, that you may hasten death through the treatment. And what's sad about it is I find very few situations where I can't make the pain tolerable without drugging someone into oblivion. Um, That's why, you know, with my last slide yesterday that we didn't get to, I, I wrote at the top morphine is not evil. I use morphine and Ativan every day, okay. If um, There's a funny comedian that a lot of Christians like to watch named Brian Regan, and he talks about getting morphine in the hospital, and he says, whoa, isn't that what they gave the guy in Save It Private Ryan? If you get shot, you're going to want somebody to give you morphine. Usually. Usually can't. Yeah, but the issue is not making the pain livable or tolerable, the issue is people don't want any suffering. And people don't want suffering to take any longer than it has to. And people feel no problem with killing to cut that short.
1: Listen. Probably the most predominant concept you're going to run into in a hospital room, nursing home, at home when someone's dying is the concept of useless suffering. And you have to have an instinctual knowledge of that as being the subtext or the explicit text of conversations. It'll come out all the time. Mud, for years before she died, said, let me die. She'd just say that, I want to die. Why can't I die? Let me die. What do you say when you're her son and she's living in your home? What do you say to her? What do you say? What do you say? It's stupid. Why doesn't God take her? What's wrong with God? Why does God keep people suffering? I want to tell us. Go ahead, Adam.
2: I want to tell a little story about that. I had a. a one of my uh, first office patients that I saw when I took uh, over this office six months ago was a man who came in, and I forget what his main complaint was, but in the course of the conversation, he tells me that there and he's an older guy, he tells me that there are um, sexual problems. And with his wife there, he says to me, and I think we need marriage counseling, but she won't go. I'm sure you don't have a sinus infection that we can deal with, you know? And, and so I do my best to get through that and to exhort her to talk about the marriage problems that the man's perceiving because, I mean, how weird is this? It's the man asking to go to marriage counseling. Um, and she's just not buying it. Just not buying it. And so the next time I see this guy is after he's had this devastating medical event that I'll be vague about, and has to go through a horrible surgery, and is left permanently disabled, and now his wife is his caregiver wiping his butt. And he's saying to me, he said in the hospital, after surgery when he came out on all these machines, why didn't you let me die? Why did you put me through this? And then he's saying to me in my office, I don't know why I'm still living. Why do I have to live like this? And it's just very clear to me that the suffering, they weren't going to reconcile, they weren't going to come together as husband and wife without suffering. And so what I exhorted him to do is have faith that God has purposes in his suffering. That God will sanctify him, that God will bring... And I didn't know if the guy was a Christian or not, I just told him this is what he has to do, is he has to have faith that God has a purpose in prolonging his life, and that until God does take him, he needs to to trust God. And then I find out that he does profess faith, and he's, he's, of course, crying, his wife's crying, and he thanks me for saying it and says, you know, I just need to keep hearing that.
1: So suffering always, always has a purpose. Always. And you may not know it. (laughs) Unfortunately, you may know it. (laughs) You may be the reason that others suffer, not just in your family, but in your church. You may realize that God's working on you.
3: If if we don't use authority, though, in the hospital, and I mean presumptuously, we'll never, we'll never do well. I don't know a place I routinely go where I don't have to, where everyone is pushing me to be on their side. You know, yeah. everyone wants you on their side. The The family members who want the one to die, they want you to say, yeah, and they'll talk to you. It's one of the great ways to tell whether what's going on is just look at the dynamics of the family. They're gonna they're gonna telegraph what's going on in that room and what's being proposed. And you know, they're not gonna say it in so many words, but you'll be able to read it from their the reactions.
1: If you and, want to.
3: If you want to. And you can't give up authority in the hospital, not to the doctors, not to the nurses, not to the family. I'm not saying you come in and barge around like you're Joe Stalin but you are God's representative and you speak for God and no one corrals you into their side. You're, you're the, the captain of the host of the Lord, you know? You're not for them or for anyone else, you're for the Lord. And that really needs to be your thought in the hospital room. And it's gonna be as often with the, the patient and with their family as with the, much more often than with the doctors or the nurses. Very, very frequently, with, wouldn't you say, with the patient and their family and you'll see dynamics come out there that you will, that you will, you'll have to deal with if you're going to be a real pastor.
2: To go back to Tim's question of what are the tip-offs? What are the clues? How do you train your mind to discern what's going on? In addition to statements like, um, you know, that's not the man I married, I would, I would listen for other buzzwords. Uh, Tim said, needless suffering. Another one is prolonging the inevitable. Whenever you hear prolonging the inevitable, antenna should go up right right away. Actually, the antenna should already be up, the warning siren should go off when you hear prolonging the inevitable. Um, it may be inevitable, but that doesn't mean you hasten it. That doesn't mean you kill someone because you don't want to prolong the inevitable. Okay, People have to be taught to trust God with the timing of their death. Um... And what Adam said yesterday is so right that so
3: often if you'll just fight, then God comes in and sweeps the battlefield. Yeah,
1: that's so, such he a good point. sweeps the battlefield. Adam. And
3: you just stand there and you make the stand and then suddenly everything disappears and God vindicates you,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, so that you say you must treat the person and they say, all right, we will. And the next day the person dies, a happy death. You know, then the family with a clean conscience. Yeah. It's so amazing how God does that. And,
2: and on some of the few occasions where... Don't forget the importance of the conscience of the, of the family. Because on some of the few occasions where I've had to fight with the palliative care team... Um, you know, and the head, of the, the head of the palliative care program at Bloomington Hospital is a guy that, I, that taught me when I was in medical school, and so I've known him for a long time, and I think even though we're polar oppos- opposites in worldview, he respects me, but I've had to oppose him a couple times, and one of the things I've said is, listen, even if this goes the way you think it's gonna go, you have to think about the conscience of the family, um, and that's gonna be w- with this family far longer than the patient's physical body is and dying with a clean conscience and having your loved one die with a clean conscience is very important in terms of caring for the whole person.
1: So right at that point, when I moved to Bloomington, we got a call from a family that was sort of involved in the church and he had, I think, just been diagnosed with cancer and it was immediate. He was in the hospital, he never got out of it. And so he asked me to come over And I'm trying to remember how it developed. I don't remember how it developed, except I do remember being... (laughs) It's weird. I remember being in the hallway. It wasn't the emergency room. It was a hallway of one of the wings of the hospital. With this man in his bed, confessing adultery that he had never confessed before. But he was getting ready to die, and he wanted to make it right with his wife okay guys this is why we keep telling you you are the man you are the minister of the gospel it's infinitely more important that he confesses adultery to his wife than that he get any medication that any hope of that is the most important thing and you're there to guarantee that that work gets done and that it gets done well so then you have to figure out how to get that wife in, who should be present, whether they should be alone, whether you should be there, Where the, the elders should be there, you see? And that's just a constant when people are sick and dying. That's what we're talking about. If you're not in a position of authority with that scene, with, with the death, you will not have a safe place for confession of sin and for repentance. And is that not the number one thing that we as ministers of the gospel do? Is we make a safe place for repentance? Is there any higher calling? I don't think there is. And so you have to be there listening. You have to, you want to say anything about that? You do that a lot in your work. You're an agent of repentance for your patients often because I hear about it from Adam day by day. You don't see it.
2: No, I see it. Um, I don't have any. I don't have anything to add to what you're okay. saying. I
3: can't see say a, a, a couple of things from being in the hospital a couple of years ago. I've learned don't stay too long. I I, 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 I want to re, re emphasize that. I had people come and they spent. Uh, they loved me. I knew it. and I, They spent hours now. Oh. Oh won't people, you please go yeah I just i I think I told Jason go they don't love didn't you. I say not come up and I said don't come up, Jason You're feeling- I love you don't come up <laughs> you know, and uh, I wouldn't let someone say that to me if i weren't if it weren't someone like Jason you know i'll go up, but go and 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 leave quickly and then the other thing is don't expect most times with the patient to for it to be deep or rewarding, <laughs> you know it's <laughs> but every once in a while it will be yeah and if you sense that last year a woman in the church was in the hospital prior to um to birth giving birth she had placenta accreta and they were afraid that she could bleed to death very afraid and so i went up to see her she was in the hospital for weeks because they had to immediately take her in so you know um in the c-section when she came close to birth. So she was in there for a week, a great woman, dear friend and she's thinking about eternal things and she has five kids already and I'm concerned about some of what she's doing with these five kids and and saying, you know, I'm thinking I want to, and I had the best chance I'll ever have in my life to talk to a parent about what you do when you get out of this hospital, when God brings you out. Hmm. things I want to see you change I think God wants you to change in your approach you know and you can at times in the hospital Mm -hmm. say things you will never be able to say
1: anywhere else yeah
2: I wanted to on the same theme of kind of watching for the moment and seizing for the moment emphasize the point that a lot of times the way these things go depends on who talks to the patient first and if you miss your chance sometimes you will be dead in the water There were two episodes I had several years ago where I went and I, I mean, all of the support staff at the hospital are used to doctors buzzing in and buzzing out, so they don't know when a doctor actually does spend time with a patient, but I mean, in both of these cases I had spent a lot of time addressing the scope of treatment, how aggressive we were going to be, how far we were going to go, had a very clearly laid out plan And right after me came a social worker who talked to the patient, used the typical loaded language. Do you want to prolong your suffering? Do you want to prolong the inevitable? Do you want to be kept alive artificially and this kind of thing? And the patient's thinking, no, I don't want to do any of that. Who wants to do that? And so then they came, called me or talked to the nurse. I forget what the case was and said, oh, well, we've got so and so to agree to be a do not resuscitate comfort measures only. Will you sign the order? And I mean, I was just ready to explode. I don't have the kind of, I don't have really an explosive personality. I have sort of a towering, timid personality. But after I worked through my own anger at it and then realized, okay, I have to do something here. This, this can't go on. If I see this ground right now, I'm useless the rest of my time in the hospital. And so on these two separate occasions, I had to go to the social worker and say, listen, you're not used to doctors doing this work but I do this work and I had just done the work, don't ever come behind me and undo the work that I just did. If you want to suggest something, you suggest it to me and then I'll tell you how it fits in with the plan I have for the patient. But don't do this. And one was great about it and we've worked well ever since. One was um, very bristly but knew she didn't really have a choice. And we've been able to work together since. But it all it all depends on how you talk to people. And often it depends on who talks to them first. And so you have to be again, I just can't say it enough, you have to be leading, not reacting.
1: Okay, one last thing, and then if there are any other questions, ask them. But man you realize you live in a culture that hates authority, right? You all know that. You know that feminism is not the issue. The issue is the hatred of the authority of God. And feminist is just a subcategory of that, right? You all know that. So you can imagine having a doctor or having a pastor who exercises authority in their ministry is going to get you every bad reputation, you're going to be a monster. You realize this. And so Adam in that situation is disciplining his subordinates, right? But when Jonathan was on the edge of death in the emergency room, and it wasn't Adam's job to be there, but Adam is just an unbelievable gift to this church and he's in that emergency room and he's tracking absolutely everything that goes on in that room with his completely stoic calm external. But you know he's not missing a thing. The nurse who was about as heavy as I am or twice is sitting there and he doesn't want to have to get up from his stool to go around Jonathan to get something he left over on the sink, the counter. Three times in the space of a couple of minutes, he's telling Adam what to do to help him. And Adam very calmly, very quietly serves the nurse. And it was clear that at least in two of the three times, it was just because the nurse was lazy. I mean, I don't know whether you would agree with that. But it was just, it was, and so you see how he exercises authority, but he also is a servant. Now, don't say servant leader. If you say it, I'll shoot you. but he is a servant now one other thing Adam first came to this church when he was how old 19 when he was 19 years old and you find out he's pre-med what do you do what do you do with a young college student who thinks he's going to be a doctor someday what do you do I distinctly remember saying to Adam, Adam, you're probably going to be in the PCA the rest of your life. And in the PCA, every single church is led by engineers, lawyers, and doctors. And every doctor thinks he's superior to his pastor. He's brighter, he makes more money, and he is more disciplined in his work. Adam, don't look down on pastors. Okay." Now, why am I telling you that? Because you are the one that forms the lawyers, the doctors, the engineers in your church. If you wanna have a doctor like Adam that then, I just go to Adam constantly. (laughs) I don't know where I'd be without Adam. You have to think in terms of you being the authority who forms the character and the commitments of those in your church. You don't kowtow to your doctors, you tell your doctors. Right? You tell them what it is to be ethical. You rebuke them. You tell them, what, uh, your, your lawyers or your judges, that they have to take a stand against homosexual marriage. You see this? Okay? And so don't think, well I wish I had a doctor like Adam. God will give you everything you need. And so if you want a doctor like Adam, don't kowtow to the rich people in your church. Okay? Form them according to scripture. And then give praise the rest of your life and just, you know, get down on your lousy, stinking knees and plead with God that he will be the one that presides over your death. (laughs) You know? And so this is something that you just take for granted. You hear Adam and, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, I wish I had a doctor like that. And I guarantee you, you will. God will give you a doctor like that. But you make sure you don't kowtow to that man or that woman. Unfortunately, I don't know what I'd do about that. Well, I do know what we do. We, talk, we talked her out of going into medicine <laughs> when she came to church. Remember that? Tell Pre-med. Later.
2: I'm, I'm forgetting.
1: Well, well, never mind. Adams wow. talked a lot of people out of going into medicine, including Abram Hess. Where's Abram? He talked you out of it, didn't he? Yep.
2: And it's not because I despise my calling, at times I have. I've come to the place where I do love my calling, but uh, it's not for everybody. Um, There's a couple other things I want to say. When it comes to morphine, and they actually call it terminal sedation, you know, keeping people drugged until they die, keeping them sedated unconscious so that they feel no pain. People ask me, well, how do you avoid that? What do you do about that danger? How how am I going to, as a a son or uh, an elder or somebody, make sure that doesn't happen? It's hard to make sure it doesn't happen. Um, Nurses and doctors both get very loosey-goosey with it. Very few people, practically speaking, have a commitment not to over-medicate. If you say to them, I don't want this medication to hasten their death. They'll say, oh, well, yeah, no, of course, of course not. We just want to keep them comfortable. But it's dishonest. They don't, practically speaking, have a commitment against killing with medication. But there's one other thing that's true about doctors, and they really don't want to get sued. Um, And so one of the things I I tell people to say is just very plainly say to every doctor treating your loved one and to the nurses, listen. I'm concerned about their suffering, but I don't want this medication to hasten their death." And all of a sudden, everyone's on high alert, and if it's a choice between four milligrams of morphine and two, they're going to try two first and see how (laughs) it goes. Okay, so that's one practical thing you can do. Um, The other thing I wanted to go back to, Tim said at the very beginning of the session, which is get your people to die at home. There's a caricature of a doctor out there that I've heard about all my life, but I don't know if I've ever seen except for on a couple of occasions, and that caricature is the doctor who just can't accept defeat and just can't deal with the fact that their treatment didn't work. Most doctors I know are very happy to move on to something they think to move on to another patient that they think they have a chance with rather than pouring time into a situation that they don't think is gonna go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So if anything, doctors do err on the side of giving up too early or promoting death as opposed to preserving life. Um, Surgeons, some surgeons may be the exception to that because they've done a surgery and they they want a high success rate. Um, but an oncologist would be the one exception to that as well. Oncologists, you know, you don't want to take a totally cynical view, but oncologists make money by giving chemo. Um, and so there have been many times where I and my partners have thought that oncologists were completely irresponsible ad- advocating chemo when it was clearly no longer effective. But anyway, it's not doctors, actually, who don't want patients to die at home. It's not doctors who want patients to die in the ICU for the most part. The reason my patients don't die at home is because families cannot handle patients dying at home. And I don't think there's anybody that can change that except pastors, to a large extent. And that's what I was trying to get at yesterday when I said teacher people to honor their parents. Um, that kind of thinking of bearing with people in their suffering through the bloody last hours, of honoring their parents, taking that responsibility to care for their parents, is the kind of thing that has to come from the pulpit and your private counseling um, with people, because you know many times I've tried to convince people to take someone home or to let them die at home, and they just say, "Well, I I couldn't handle that,"
1: and it's some of your best people that will do that, and it's. What are you gonna do? But boy, when your people are young and they're gonna build a house, you just immediately say to them, so where are your parents gonna live? Are you building an in-law apartment on this house? Is it all one level? How are you gonna get their wheelchair? Yeah, yeah, talk to them about this, would you? Well, no. Well, they did it, you know? And so Mud died at their home. Annie Lane died in our home. When you do this, if you have home births, you know, Mary Lee and I believe in having babies at home. I'm sorry. Okay? Natural processes should be at home because then it really is your turf. <coughs> it's your decision what music is playing and how loudly.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, if you want to ha- yeah, have a swimming pool in the middle of your living room, be Michael Foster, you know. <laughs> Where is he? Oh, he missed it. That's too bad. And so, you know, be the conscience of your people. Preach about it. Preach about the importance of us honoring old age, and then do it by yourself having a home that has people in your home. You know, Alex, for all of your weaknesses, think of the impact of you and Paul, you know, having your mothers in law, having lived with you, of Stephen, what that does to our whole church that Stephen's mother in law lives with him. And so that's what Adam's talking about. And if you live this out, it's going to get to the end, and it's going to scare you out of your wits. How many times do you think we were on the phone with you as Annie Lane died? Bunch. Oh, it just scared you out of your wits, you know. But boy, it's so sweet to have death at home. It's so sweet to have birth at home, as long as it's a low-risk birth and there's not any, and you're close to a hospital, you know. It's so much nicer in the hospital. The hospital's a lot better than it used to be for birth.
2: Yeah.
3: Let me just say, as the pastor
1: of a church where two women last
3: year had had hemorrhaging. Yeah, yeah. You know, one on a, a third or fourth birth just out of the blue. I,
1: well, yeah. he but You don't birth. want to
3: fight to have your people have yeah. home births. But <laughs> death, yes. Death at home is, is wonderful.
1: And not a mother dying giving birth. Not that that death. Okay, any questions before we end? Yes, Caleb. Sudden and unexpected what?
0: Deaths.
2: Well, I'll speak to that. The question is, what do you do with an unexpected death?
1: And the guilt of the family. And the
2: guilt of the family. And these guys probably have something better to add, but I'll I'll speak to it from my own um, experience. My dad died going on two years ago, and we knew he was harming himself through alcohol, but we had no idea he was going to die then. As I said yesterday, my sister found him in the back of his pickup truck dead. You think I wasn't just riddled with guilt? I had talked to him the day before on the hospital. or or, talked to him the day before and he had said he was not feeling well. And I'm thinking everything you can imagine, like, uh, you know, should I have driven down to Evansville and taken him to the hospital myself? Should I have told him, Dad, go to the hospital? Should I have told my uncle, call 911? should I have called him that night and checked on him. I mean, there's a thousand and one things you could have done differently. And what got me through that was honestly, you know, talking to Tim and having him care for me pastorally and helping me know how to deal with that guilt.
1: Nobody dies without the family feeling guilty. I don't care the circumstances of the death. I don't think it's more common with sudden death than it is with long, prolonged death. Death is the drawing of a line under life, and it's done. And there's no circumstance in which we are not overwhelmed with our failures. I sit here listening to David talk about the death of my brother Nathan. All I can see is my failures with Nathan. You know? The nature of life is, in the midst of life, we live in death. And of whom must we seek for relief? But of thou, O Lord, who for our sins art justly displeased. That's our life. And so, you know, one of the most piercing guilts of surrounding death is what? Obviously suicide. That one's horrible. We haven't dealt with that at all. But you know what one of the most awful guilts is? I was once in a car coming back from a presbytery meeting back at the time when a lot of my elders were women. I had a car filled with women from an elders meeting and those women got talking late at night about their miscarriages. And let me tell you, it was guilt, every single one of them. Why? Well, I'm convinced that one of the reasons a lot of women have guilt over miscarriage is because they have ambivalence about their pregnancy. And the minute that miscarriage hits, they just realize that they willed that baby to death. And so miscarriages and stillbirths, they're awful. And so what do you do? What do you do? You're a minister of the gospel. The gospel is good news to those who are sinners. Of course the mother was ambivalent. Of course it's awful to be ambivalent about the gift of life. Our dad used to say, talking about false guilt,
3: he'd say there's the idea out there that there's false guilt. He said there's no such thing as false guilt. If you feel guilty, you're guilty. There's guilt. You've got to deal with it as guilt.
1: Don't try and talk the guilt away. Deal with it as guilt. Yeah, the false guilt is the guy that says guilty with an explanation, Your Honor. Yeah. He cops a posture as being guilty, but he's really telling you he's not. We have lots of false guilt false repentance maybe yeah maybe, yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah but you do deal with guilt all the time uh, and it is true when death is sudden um, the emotions are really awful and that leads me to say one thing and then I think let's just draw it to an end and um, don't ever ask permission to come to a hospital room and visit. Don't ever ask permission to go to a house. Don't ever ask permission. Now, I know that seems wrong to you. But honestly, if you ask permission to come visit people in their home or their work or something, they'll always say no.
3: That's the extent of where you'll go.
1: I don't understand. In other
3: words, you won't transgress beyond that. You've defanged yourself. Yeah. You know, you understand that you won't, if you ask permission, then once you come, you've got to be on your best behavior because you got permission. Never. That's ask interesting, yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. And it's not because you're rude, but it's because you're a minister of the gospel. I do ask permission of the person in the bed next to the person from our church. If I may pray for them after I've prayed for the other person, and I don't think more than one time in my life has anybody even been hesitant. If they hear you loving your person, they're aching to have you love them. So you go around that curtain as soon as you get done, and you touch them, and you pray for them, you know?
2: I've had them call me over after doing that, and I've never met the patient before. Hey, will you come over here and do that for me?
1: And one final thing, when you're in the hospital room, every single time you pray for the patient, what do you do at the end of your prayer? What you always do, this is what I do, is, and Lord, we trust you. We put our faith in you. We will submit to your will. Thank you for your kindness. And Father, would you please give mercy and compassion to the nurses and the doctors and the orderlies in this hospital? And would you keep them from becoming inured to to pain? Would you make them soft? Would you help them in their work? Every single time I pray in a hospital room, that's how I end. (laughs) And I don't do it because nurses and doctors are listening. But you'd be surprised how often they are, and you would be surprised. They absolutely adore you. When you pray that, it's like you're walking on water from that point on. And that's what you want to pray for doctors and nurses, is that God will give them a gift of compassion so that they don't become desensitized.
0: This has been a production of Clearnote Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.